What a good day we have today to worship the Lord together. I was thinking about it just a moment ago, how difficult holidays can be for a preacher, uh, not because holidays are difficult in and of themselves. I'm not much of a Hallmark guy, so if you, you know, holiday, Hallmark seems to have a card for every kind of thing they do. Every day seems to have a day today, but holidays seem tough because in the schedule of my mind and how I think through texts and working through different texts, they seem to throw a wrench sometimes in that, in the flow of that. And so it's difficult for me sometimes to transition to all of that. And as you notice, probably in your bulletin from our title this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. So the holiday isn't going to throw a wrench into this morning. Next week we'll do something a little different. But I want us to take our Bibles this morning and open them to our study of the Gospel of Luke. And we find ourselves once again in Luke chapter 8. We are, we are walking through the life, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And as we begin, I want to read for us this passage in Luke chapter 8. Really, it's short, beginning in verse 19. But I want to read this for us, as well as the parallel passages in both Matthew and Mark just so that our thinking will be fully rounded out concerning Christ and this particular little event that seems rather unimportant in the grand scheme of things, and yet it has some profound truth for us to just think through. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 19, simply says this, And his mother and his brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. There was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Those who hear the word of God and do it. Of course, we have been seeing that principle be played out in the previous verses with the parable of the sower and Beginning in verse 16, when Jesus says, no one who has the truth hides it under a container. If you have the light, you share the light, right? Nothing hidden will not become evident. Everything will be seen to be what it is. So take care how you listen, he says in verse 18. And then you have this little section here where Jesus' family comes and he says, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 46, the text says this. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 46, while he was still speaking to the crowds, Behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And again, over in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 31, Then his mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside they sent word to him and called him, crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, or is my brother and sister and mother. And you notice in Mark's Gospel in chapter 4, immediately begins the whole accounting of the parable of the sower. Prior to that, prior to this little 
snippet of information that we have beginning in Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 35, you have this discussion going on between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees were saying that Jesus casts out Satan by Satan, that he he really is uh, Satan himself. He's a demon himself. He's He's possessed by a demon, by Beelzebul, they call it in verse 22. The people want to take custody of him, verse 20 says, 21 says, because they're saying he has lost his sentence, senses. So the crowd thinks Jesus is crazy. The Pharisees think Jesus is full of demons. And they're part of the people that are around Jesus. So I want to begin our time this morning just by asking us this question. What is the greatest problem that mankind faces today? We have all of these texts as our background as we're going to look into this morning. And I, and I want to kind of front load that with this question. What is the greatest problem that mankind faces today? There is much being offered by way of answers in our day and age from all sides of the playing field as to what man's problem really is Global warming, we have a problem with global warming that if we don't do certain things to reduce the carbon footprint that each and every one of us have, whatever that is, that the world is going to rise, the temperature is going to rise, the ice shelves in the north and the south of our globe are going to melt, the, the oceans will rise, the seas will get deeper, the land will be fewer and fewer, and so global warming is our problem. Some say equity or equality is our problem. There's much going on with that today by way of all kinds of philosophies in reference to the equality of man in every area of life. Violence certainly is a problem in our day and age. Many are fighting with one another. And it seems from even the Christian perspective, the answer to that question ought to be pretty simple. It seems rather simple, at least from the Christian perspective, even though there are many answers that have been espoused over the years within evangelicalism, the answer should be relatively easy. In fact, mankind is so acutely aware that there are problems with the world and with people today individually And that, therefore, produces all kinds of societal problems, all kinds of things that go on within the neighborhoods and within the countries that man has come up with, not only with its own answers to the question that I asked, but also how to fix it. And most oftentimes, the answer has something to do with some kind of external reform some kind of external reform, some kind of way in which we reform ourselves by external means. In other words, making a change to outward things, ensuring personal and societal morality and ethics go the way they ought to, however that is defined, through some kind of outward change. That in our world is believed to be the panacea that will fix all of man's problems. We just reform ourselves. Now, as intelligent people, I am sure that you have noticed over the past several decades that there has been a greater and greater cry in our world, and it has taken place even within evangelicalism for a new moral reformation. In our world, particularly, it's growing hotter and hotter in our day, we hear of the homosexual agenda. That that is the new morality. We hear now of transgenderism. The greater acceptance of all kinds of perversions and the non-reality that those who live within reality are to now accept. Either way, change is being determined and decided upon. And all who 
who claim the name of Christ ought to be concerned. You and I ought to have a concern for that for the simple reason that the Bible gives us the standard by which we are to live and which we are to reflect. And yet at the same time, the Bible is clear to point out that behavioral reformation alone, external changes, it doesn't spring from the outflow of a relationship with Jesus Christ, then it's even more dangerous than the immorality that it is seeking to eliminate. If there isn't a reformation internally, then any reformation externally only becomes a facade and a danger to real change. Outward morality without inward change is simply an illusion. It's the grandest trick of the master illusion, Satan himself, illusion is Satan himself. And it's a great hindrance to what will bring true reformation, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus was continually pointing out that reality to the crowd. He was continually pointing out the reality that outward reformation, outward righteousness, outward attempts at being good with God, being in a relationship with God based upon the externals is one of the greatest deterrents concerning the gospel. Why? Because those who are self-righteous, those who believe they're okay with God through the externals of life see no need for real heart change. Moralists, beloved, have no need for a relationship with Jesus Christ. Moralists in our world and in evangelicalism have no need for a heart change. Why? Because the basis of their righteousness is only outward acts. It's only outward activity. And in the same time when Jesus was walking the earth, the scribes and the Pharisees were the greatest moralists of all. No one was more committed to the rigid, to the outward rules and regulations of morality than the Pharisees. No one had a greater fastidiousness to doing the things that were supposedly bringing honor to God and born out of a relationship with God than the Pharisees. And yet, their demanding structure for keeping the law of God, even though it was based on the truth, only served to drive them farther and farther away from the truth. You say, why? Because they had convinced of themselves that outward reformation, that doing things outwardly, simply doing on the outside in their own behavior was a means to being righteous before God. And because of that, the real source of righteousness, Jesus Christ, the source of righteousness before God, that He only got in their way. This is why we see it today. Christianity gets in the way of any worldly agenda. Christianity is the enemy of all the world's agenda. And so according to many who want this kind of new morality, Christianity has to be removed. We saw that even this week in the news with the shooting in Tennessee. Someone who was living out their morality based upon their own desires, their own agendas, went in and shot up people who were living a different morality. And so when Jesus preached about sin and all men being internally sinful, the Pharisees had no interest in that. There's no, no need for that. It had no relevance with them. In their minds, they were already righteous. And so I want you to think through this with me. Jesus comes along. Jesus is, comes on the scene and He tells the religious leaders of the day, he tells the general population of the day that their entire life, their entire growing up, their entire life, all that they've ever done in their life is self-righteous. It is self-righteous deeds only. And they're blind to the real truth. They're blind to it. That their form of righteousness is the greatest form of unrighteousness. That's what Jesus is telling them. 
And their only response is hatred. They hated Jesus. They hated Him for pointing out to them the actual truth. They wouldn't be reached with the life-giving news of the Gospel. Why? Because they're rock-hard hearts. Their hearts were like the stony ground. They, they were hard. The Gospel would go to them and it would just bounce off. Listen, let's bring it just a little closer to our own time. Similar to the time in which we live today. The most difficult people to reach with the truth of the gospel are those who are steeped in self-righteous reformation. You want to read somebody with the gospel? You go out and you share the gospel. Well, those who believe they're already righteous enough want nothing to do with the gospel. The self-righteous moralist, that's the hardest person to reach with the gospel. The only, the one who looks at their life and concludes, I'm an acceptable person. I'm okay because I live a morally good life and that morality is defined by me. I'm okay. Well, those in Luke 8 are those kind of people. And they represent the vast majority of people in our world. And even many who are church-going people, just like we read in Matthew 7 this morning. They don't think they need Jesus. They don't think they need the Jesus, at least the Jesus of the Bible, they may say they want Jesus, but it's an antichrist desire. It's not a desire for Christ. It's an antichrist because it's not the true Christ they want. And so the conviction that is brought to their hearts through the spreading of the gospel has no effect. And it would have no effect. Why? Because they see themselves as already righteous. They're eternally safe in their minds. Outward attachment to visible morality. Attachment to a Christ through ritual. An attachment to a relationship with God through actual, as we see this morning, family ties. Heritage. They're no help when it comes to the only righteousness that God accepts. The inner transformation that is needed for all men. This is what Jesus is getting to. The inner transformation that is needed for all men. That can only be gained through a relationship with God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that relationship is in His Son, in God's Son, by means of repentance of sin for the forgiveness of sin. So mark this down somewhere as a universal principle. Put it in your Bibles. Put it on your mind. Write it somewhere. The sin issue of the heart must be dealt with in Christ or there is no relationship with God that saves. Mark that down. Don't let it confuse you. Don't let it get fuzzy. Don't let it get foggy. Don't let it get washed away. Don't let the edges become less sharp than they are. The sin issue of the heart has to be dealt with in Jesus Christ or there is no relationship with God that saves. This is what Jesus is speaking to in these verses in Luke 8. The essence of righteousness is not wrapped up in the externals. The essence of righteousness is wrapped up in the power of the relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, in order to have true reformation, in order for that to truly happen, one must have a new and right relationship with God. And that only comes through the confession of sin, turning to Christ and embracing Him as the Savior and Lord of their life. You say, why? Because Reformation is not salvation. Reformation is not regeneration. 
Reformation is not redemption without Jesus Christ as Savior. Reformation is just outward. It's like sending an alcoholic to AA and they come out someone who doesn't drink. And yet for the rest of their life, they still call themselves a recovering alcoholic. They don't drink, but they're still an alcoholic. It's changed nothing other than their health. And so reformation, outward only, is just that, an outward reformation. And it can only work toward the very opposite of true salvation because it captures a person in self-satisfaction. They become self-satisfied in themselves and think that because they did that, they're okay. And so, with that just in our minds, with that as a kind of an undergirding, a background, I want us to return to these verses in Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. Because you remember, Jesus has dealt with two groups of people. Two groups of people, right? Those who were the subtle rejectors of Christ, right? That's the crowd in general. They're the subtle ones. They, they knew some things about Jesus, and many of them probably were even uh, acquaintances, if not close acquaintances, and maybe even relatives uh, on, a, on an extended level, as we saw in Mark's gospel. They knew him well. They thought he was just out of his mind. And astonishingly enough, these people knew Christ in that more personal way. They had some kind of interaction with Him in a personal way. And many of them were most likely, as I said, close acquaintances with Him. They might have been cousins and and second cousins and third cousins. They were people probably from even His hometown in Nazareth. And they had some concern for Jesus as a person. They, they thought, man, he's just, he's just gone wacky in his mind. But in the end, their conclusion about him was that he did a lot of things that are very interesting, a lot of things that help people, but really there was no conviction in their hearts concerning their own sin. No real deep questions in them about the fact as to who he might really be. Who is this? After all, he was just doing all of these miracles. And yet their familiarity with Jesus only bred contempt in their heart. Because many of them just would come out and say, isn't this just Joseph's son? I mean, isn't this the carpenter's son? So they had a a subtle contempt for Jesus. Their rejection was subtle. It was disguised under the pretense of concern. Oh, we're concerned for this guy. But it really wasn't concern at all. It was just as damning to their soul as any other kind of rejection. Why? Because they had pushed conviction aside. They, as Romans 1 clearly says, had suppressed the truth in their own unrighteousness. And the result was to push aside the cure for their sinful life. And so for them, there's no forgiveness. No repentance, no forgiveness. That's one group that Jesus is dealing with. Then there's that second group in the crowd that we already have mentioned. They weren't so subtle in their rejection. They were outwardly and vehemently opposed to Jesus Christ. These were the vocal moralists, if you will. Those who whose outward reformation in their life was their hope. That's what they relied on. These are the Pharisees and the scribes. And the only conclusion they could come to about Jesus was that he was of the realm of Satan, that he was casting out demons by the prince of demons, Beelzebul. Yeah, he's doing miracles. They, they would certainly acknowledge that, but how he was doing them was just a sham. It was demonic, at least in their minds. So his message had nothing to do or say to them. His message wasn't for them at all, at least in their minds. And they were already 
okay with God. Their relationship with God was something that they could hang on to already. For them, there was no conviction. And no conviction was equal to no forgiveness. Why? Because God can't forgive someone who doesn't repent. You refuse to repent. You refuse to believe the gospel. There is no forgiveness of your sins. I don't care how many acts of reformation you do on the outside. But then curiously, there is this third group of people in this crowd. It's the earthly family of Jesus. When it, within this context, it becomes, at least for Jesus in this moment, an opportunity to highlight once again the need for a relationship with Him that is spiritually related. If there is to be a relationship with God the Father, you have to have a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, there's only one point to be made in this section in verses 19 through 21, and it is this. Without a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no relationship with God. You cannot have salvation without having Jesus. Now that separates a whole lot of people in our world. That separates a whole lot of religious people in our world. Let alone those who will claim a Jesus even though he's not the Jesus of the Bible. You cannot have a relationship with God the Father unless you come through God the Son. Look at what the text says with me. I'll just read it again. And his mother and his brothers came to him and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. Of course, Mark's gospel says they, they wanted to get to him because they, they thought, man, he, he's been working long. He's been working hard days. He, he's, he's probably very exhausted. He's mentally incapacitated because of all the exhaustion. We need to get to him and get him out of there. They come to him and it's reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They're wishing to see you. I think the language there, at least in the translated version, can be kind of confusing when it says they're standing outside. He wasn't necessarily in a building. He was in this crowd. The crowd is around him. They're at a distance from him, so they're standing on the outskirts of the crowd. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. By this time in the life of Jesus... As you notice here, at least in all of the gospel accounts of this, Joseph is not mentioned. Most likely because Joseph had probably died by this time. And that's why all of the gospel writers fail to mention that he's in this group of family who comes to him. His family was now consisting of his mother and his brothers and sisters. This notion that Mary didn't have, Jesus didn't have any brothers or sisters is a false notion. It's foolishness. It's just skipping over exactly what the Gospels say. We know who his mother was. It was Mary. We also know his half-brothers because they're listed in the Gospels. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. They're all named in Matthew 13, verse 55. His sisters are never named in Scripture, but we know he had them. Matthew 13 clearly tells us that. And so this is who's on the outer edges of this dense crowd where Jesus is. It's his earthly family. And you think about it, if anyone had a, had a claim of relationship with Jesus, they could have, right? This is his earthly family. At least on, a, on an earthly level, they could claim that and no one could deny that. But they, they could even go farther than that, say, hey, we, we're right with God. I mean, we know Jesus. He's our brother. He's my, he's my, my son. So here's this crowd. They're tight around Jesus. And it's, that's what it tells us in Mark's Gospel. And they've come to look for him. Luke's gospel doesn't tell us why specifically, but the implication from the other gospels and the, the original language in Mark was that they too had a concern for him. They had a concern for his well-being. Why? Probably because he had stirred up no small commotion among the Jewish leaders. We know that. The Pharisees and the scribes hated Jesus. 
So the secret was out concerning the leaders. They had a desire to get rid of him. They know that. So I'm sure his family had a desire to persuade him to go into some kind of hiding, if not for himself, let alone to protect their own necks. Because if the Pharisees were going to come after Jesus, the quickest way to get him was to go to the family. In fact, the original language in Mark's account indicates that they were demanding his attention. Here it says, it was reported your mother and brother wishing to see you. In Mark's gospel, the intensity is in their demand. Probably they were fearing for their own lives, being his relatives. And so they, they had in their own words this intensity in their demand for his attention. We're here and we are demanding your attention. That's the implication, really, of the language even here, even though we have it in at least the New American Standard where it says they're wishing to see you. It's a strong demand. It's not just, hey, can you go tell Jesus we're out here, we'd like to see him? That's not what they're doing. They're demanding. And so Jesus answers the message with a lesson to all who are there, and it's a lesson for us here. Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. That's a, that's a pretty strong answer. And you might think, at least at first glance, as you read through this, wow, that's kind of strange. Jesus is turning his back on his earthly family. But we know that can't be the case. We know Jesus would never do that. In fact, he loved them. Even his final words, he had asked John the Apostle to care for his earthly mother. He would have never done that had he emotionally turned his back upon her. Even his brothers must have known his love for them because eventually they came to believe in him. You say, really? Yeah, Acts chapter 1, verse 14 says... These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with, with his brothers. So here Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. They're in the upper room and Jesus' brothers are there with Mary, the mother. Surely some of the women were his sisters and they're all praying along with this at this time because they believed Jesus. So there's no sense in which Jesus is renouncing any of his family ties. No, he's highlighting the fact that family relations, heritage, which was huge in the mind of a Jew, family relations carry no bearing on having a relationship with God. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what family you belong to, it has no bearing on your relationship with God. And I thought that was an interesting reality for us to just see and understand. Growing up in a home where parents profess the name of Christ is no guarantee of salvation. Growing up in a home where parents come to know Christ and the children are taken to church each and every day, faithfully every week to Sunday school and poured into their lives with Sunday teachers and, and people who open the Bible to them. And they go to youth group and all these other kind of things. That's no guarantee, beloved, that they will ever be saved. Why? Because the essence of righteousness is not wrapped up in the externals. We know that intellectually, we talk about that intellectually here, but oftentimes we live as if we believe that all of those externals are going to cause something to happen in some miraculous way, and we neglect the reality of continuing to preach the gospel to those we know. We think, oh, I'll just bring them to this, or I'll take them to this, and that'll save them. No, it's only those and it's all of those who follow the will of God who are part of the family of God. Let me turn for a moment over to John chapter 3. John gets very pointed in his language. It's 
Notice what he says in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's a statement of fact. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have life. But, sharp contrast, he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. The reality of believing and obeying are synonymous. One who says they have faith, i.e. Matthew chapter 11, they say, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? You can say all kinds of things. You can say you believe, but if your life isn't obedient to the things of Christ, you have to ask yourself the question, am I saved? And again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about the direction of life, the desires of your heart, the drive of your life. He who believes in His Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. doesn't matter what you say. doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter the externals. Turn back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, couldn't be clearer. Beginning in verse 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Speaking of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was not the light. He came to testify about the light. Verse 8, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, that is Jesus, and the world was made through him. Why? Because Christ created everything, and the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and those who were his own didn't receive him. But, sharp contrast, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, notice, not of blood, there's heritage, nor of the will of the flesh, there's the externals, nor of their will of man. It wasn't a man-derived thing, it wasn't a physical thing, it was something that has to be done by God. They are born of God. In other words, those who are part of the family of God, those who know life, are the ones who willfully do the will of God. You say that sounds very contradictory, Pastor. You just said we can't do things. True, we can't. So let me say it another way. Doing righteous deeds in order to be a part of the family of God will not work. Why? Because true obedience to God is the outflow. It's the outflow of a heart that belongs to God already by repentance and faith. Believing in Jesus Christ produces the outflow. It's the work of the life. That So you say, well, what is God's will if we are to do God's will, right? Jesus said that back in Luke Chapter 8, it's not those who are my physical family who are my brothers and my mother, but those who hear the word and do it. Do it. Do the will of God. What's the will of God? God's will is simply God's desires. What God desires. What God wants. So we have to ask the question, what does God want? What does God want? We'll turn for a moment over to John chapter 6. Wonderful passage of Jesus Christ teaching the crowds. Just came off the heels of feeding the crowds miraculously. God... He feeds the crowds. He shows them His power over all things. He shows them that He is the sufficient one, that it is He whom they ought to want and desire. And then Jesus goes out at night in the strong winds and walks on the water and shows those who are in the boat, listen, don't be afraid. Creation is with you. The one who creates all things is with you. I am is here. 
If you're afraid of the storm, you ought to fear me more because I'm the one who creates the storm. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, it says in verse 21. And the next day, in verse 22, the crowd stands on the other side of the sea. They're wondering where Jesus went. And so they start hightailing it across on these boats to cross the way. And they come to Capernaum seeking Jesus, verse 24 says. And so there's this crowd that Jesus feeds. He gives them food to eat. He shows the disciples who he really is through the calming of the storm. Teaches them they don't need to fear anything. They just need to follow him. The crowds come the next day and they want Jesus to feed them again. So Jesus begins to teach them in verse 26. They want physical bread. Jesus says you need to have me. right? I'm the bread you need to have. In verse 35, Jesus begins to say this. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Why? Because I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is the will of God? Here it is. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I don't think there could be a better precursor message to Easter than that. You believe in Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear anything. You don't have to concern yourself with outside reformation in order in hopes to be right with God. In Jesus Christ, you're right with God. And Jesus Christ promises that if you believe upon Him, not only are you in His family, but He's going to raise you up on the last day. You have eternal life. That is the will of God. So it is God's desire, it is God's will that men believe upon His Son. Why? Because it is God's will that men be delivered from the penalty and guilt of their sin. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3-5 through Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins that He might deliver us out of this present age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forevermore. See, it's according to the will of God. This is the will of God. What? Salvation. It is according to God's desire. It is according to God's will that men be saved. And it is according to His will, His desire, that salvation come in only one way, through His Son. So if you believe you got saved through your efforts, you are believing in a God who cannot save. Because the God who saves is the one who says it's His will that you come to Him only through His Son. So if you don't come through His Son, whatever God you believe you're safe with, you are not safe at all. You're in more danger than you ever thought. So the implication then from the words of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 8 are that without obedience to the desire of God that begins with believing in His Son there is no possibility of being in the family of God. That's why Jesus would say that. The crowd is saying, hey, listen, these are your mother and your brothers. Don't you want to talk and be with them? And Jesus is saying, listen, you want to know who the true brothers and mother and sisters of mine are? It is those who have come to me because it's the will of God and they do it. 
They follow me. There is no other way. Outward reformation cannot and will not ever save. Listen again to the words of Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life. And so here we are in Luke chapter 8, and these people are following Jesus, and the crowds are hearing what Jesus is saying. They keep hearing the gospel, and he tells them this wonderful parable that they would surely understand in that agrarian society where planting and sowing had taken place over and over and over and over again. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you hear of me, if you hear of Christ, then stop rejecting Christ. Stop being the rocky ground. Stop being the stony ground. Stop being the ground that is so worried that the world just chokes out the gospel in you. Stop rejecting. Why? Because in me, in me alone is eternal life, Jesus is saying. You want to have a relationship with the Father? Then you must have a relationship with me. It's through me. I'm the only way into the heavenly family. He says, if you will not believe, you will not be included. God's will for mankind is for them to believe in His Son. That's the will of God. To believe upon Jesus Christ. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him in whom He has sent Beloved, if we reject Jesus Christ, there is no hope. The world says, oh, we've got to reform ourselves. We've got to have this outward reformation. We've got to talk about equality and unity and all these other kinds of terms that are socially generated terms in order to bring us together in this one collective worldview that says we are good. We are self-made people. We made it to righteousness on our own. That is a damning lie. Outward morality will never save. It only will deceive. Matthew chapter 7 makes that patently clear. I read it this morning in our time of Bible reading. Those who spoke those words were moral people. They were, they were religious people. But God was not impressed. A saving relationship, true righteousness, comes only from submissively believing in the one whom God has sent. Receiving the gift of salvation that only Jesus Christ can bring. And the visible result of that in the life is one that submissively does what God desires. They hear the word of God and they do it. There's salvation in no one else. No one else. One commentator put it this way, quote, at best, at best, reformation changes only the outside of a person. At worst, it becomes a barrier to their being changed on the inside. But a right relationship to Christ brings a completely new life both inside and outside. Right. So it ought not be our desire as Christians to be more moral than other people in hopes that our morality will change society and life. No, it ought to be our desire as Christians to be people who continually follow God's desires because we have believed upon His Son unto salvation. And now we live to reflect Him in us. Man doesn't need more morality. What man needs is deliverance from sin. That only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
To believe in him is to begin to follow the will of God. It's interesting in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, and going all the way through the end of the chapter, there are four incidents that happen. Seemingly impossible incidents that take place. There's a storm that cannot be calmed until Jesus calms it. There's a demoniac that no one could bind. It's impossible to bind him until Jesus Christ binds him. There's a woman with a sickness who no doctor, it was impossible for any doctor to heal until Jesus heals him. And there's a son, there's a daughter of a, of a ruler, Jarius, who's no one seemed to be able to help in any kind of way. And she supposedly could not be raised and Jesus raises her from the dead. Jesus shows clearly in all of these that I am the one in whom you must follow. I have power over it all. Is it any wonder that John says, he who believes in him has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray together. And we'll have our time around the communion table. Father, we do thank you for this day. Lord, you have wonderfully orchestrated your life on earth so that we might see truly who you are. You are the true God, the living God, the one in whom is life. We have no hope without Christ. Lord, may that be on our hearts this day as we think about life itself, as we think about family and times when people come together around the holidays and want to know why it is we are how we are. The only reason we can tell them anything is because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. For in us there is no righteousness, but in you there is all righteousness. And so we're thankful that God the Father made you who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might be the righteousness of God in you. We're thankful that we have Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we continue our time of worship, may you be honored and blessed in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.